Good morning. I've been to many churches in my life, but I can tell you this, Riverstone seems to really know how to do Christmas. Uh, it is great to be here with the lights and the hymns and the special services. I am really just delighted to be a part of all this. Uh, Christmas is that special time of year for many families. It can be very distracting sometimes, though, this time of year, right? You've got the pressure to find the right gifts, figure out uh, who you're supposed to even give a present to. You know, you've got family members, you've got estranged family members, you've got family members you don't really like. You've got friends, co-workers, secretaries, I mean, bosses, where does it all end? But through all of that and the distraction and the stress and the excitement of the holidays, I know it sounds cheesy, but uh, we really need to remember why we're doing all this. The reason for all of it. We need to remember that this whole season is supposed to be about the gift of Jesus Christ from God the Father to us. We give gifts to each other because God has given us the gift of his son who came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins, rise again that we might have hope and resurrection as well. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Let's just take a minute, calm our hearts before the Lord, and, and get our minds focused in prayer before Jesus. Father, I ask that you would draw our attention to you now, that we would consider Jesus, the incarnation, the wonder of the Son of God come to earth through the Virgin Mary. I pray that as we consider him, that we would think about how impactful it is this season upon our lives, and that we might go forth from here praising you as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a couple of ushers that are going to hand out some Bibles. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We are happy to give you one. This is our gift to you. We think it's that important that you have a Bible. Uh, you can go ahead and take that home with you if you need one. Last week, we saw in the Gospel of Luke the promise. The angel Gabriel promised a young teenager named Mary that she was going to have a child through the Holy Spirit. And that child's name, of course, would be Jesus. He would be the Savior of the world the Davidic king, the Messiah. He is God in human flesh. And we saw that Mary was overwhelmed by this promise. She's humbled by it. She says, I am a bond slave of the Lord. That's, that was her words from Luke 1. She is a, a lowly servant who doesn't deserve anything that the Lord has given her. So last week we saw that promise. This week we're going to think more about the fulfillment of that promise. What would you do if God gave you the news that you were going to give birth to the Messiah or that your, your wife-to-be was going to give birth to the Messiah? How would you react if you knew that you were carrying God himself in your womb? So through Mary's reaction this morning, we're going to learn something about what our reaction should be towards Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 39. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39. The Bible says, Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now there's a lot of names and places there. Let's just make sure that we understand the context and the background of what we're reading here. Whenever we're reading scripture, we don't want to divorce the story that we're in from the surrounding context. The context gives its, its meaning. Earlier in chapter 1, we saw the angel Gabriel tell Mary that she would be giving birth to the Messiah. And Mary asks the angel in verse 34, 
How can this be? She's unmarried. She's still a virgin. She wants to know how it can be that she can get pregnant at this moment. And the angel tells her that your cousin or your relative, depending on your translation, might say cousin, might say relative. The, the term is a little broader than cousin, but we'll just use cousin for most of the time. But the angel tells her your cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant. That's the proof that you're going to get pregnant too. Now to us, that might not be really significant, but to Mary, knowing Elizabeth, that is significant. Uh, earlier in Luke 1, we saw that Elizabeth was an old, old woman. She was married to the priest Zechariah. She was barren, meaning that she was, when she was young, she wasn't able to have kids, even when she was trying. She was also advanced in years, meaning that she had reached the age in life where having kids was no longer possible. And yet, the angel tells Mary that miraculously, Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, was six months pregnant. Now, that's, that's like going to Christmas dinner and having your grandmother tell you that she's six months pregnant, right? It's, it's either a Christmas miracle or a Christmas nightmare, depending on your perspective here. But the angel Gabriel tells Mary that God can do anything. There's nothing that's impossible with God. Here's the proof. Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Go and visit her. What would you do? You'd get on your donkey and you'd go, right? And that's exactly what Mary does. She gets on her donkey and heads over to see Elizabeth. I mean, who wouldn't? The text says that she went in a hurry. She's not wasting any time. Uh, if you look at the screen, we'll have a map up here for you. Mary is traveling up north from Nazareth, and she's going all the way down south in Judah. That's a distance of about 60 to 70 miles, depending on what road she's taking. A few days' journey on foot. But she's not wasting any time. She immediately obeys the angel. She gets up, follows the angel's words by confirming what Gabriel said about her cousin. So she travels down the country. She shows up at her pregnant cousin's house. And, and just a bit of free advice for you here. Uh, generally in life, it's not the best idea to show up at a pregnant woman's house unannounced and stay for a while at least, right? Um, probably not the best idea, but that culture really valued hospitality. Maybe even much more than we do. Mary might have shown up unexpectedly, but she certainly wasn't unwelcome. But she shows up, and something really cool happens when she's, she arrives. Remember, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Mary just recently conceived by the Holy Spirit. Look at what the text says in the first part of verse 41. This is really cool. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, this is a really exciting verse for a couple of different reasons. First of all, and, and this, by the way, is not really the main point that Luke is trying to make, but it's something I think is really helpful to point out, especially in the context of our culture today. But first of all, there is no question about the biblical position of life in the womb. There's no question at all. It is not an ambiguous issue. Life begins in the womb. Mary walks in, and Elizabeth's baby leaps for joy in the womb. That's not a description of a glob of undeveloped cells that has yet only potential life. That is a description of life itself in the womb. In fact, I'll point out Luke actually uses a very specific word here. We translate it in the New American Standard as baby. Uh, the baby leaped in her womb. The Greek word brephos is the same exact word Luke is going to use later on in chapter 2 when the angel tells the shepherds, you are going to find a baby, a brephos, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger. In other words, Luke is using the same exact word for a six-month-old unborn baby 
as he does for a baby outside of the womb. For Luke, there is no difference at all in the life of that child. One is in the womb, one is out of the womb, but it's the same kind of a child. And I think it's important to recognize that fact here right now in this culture. But it's also important for me to say and to recognize that not only is the Bible clear on this issue that life starts in the womb, but I want to say that God is a God of love and mercy and forgiveness. Some of you in your fear and your confusion, perhaps even in your ignorance, made decisions that you now regret. I want you to know that Jesus Christ died for you. He died for you. He loves you. Even while you were yet in your sins, the Bible says, he died for you. If you've confessed that sin before the Lord, you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says you are forgiven. You are loved. You no longer need to be a slave to that sin or that guilt. But the text is clear here. Elizabeth's child reacts to Mary's entrance. Now remember, Elizabeth's child is who? Who, who is she carrying? Yeah, John the Baptist. Good. And John the Baptist's role is to prepare the way for Jesus. Who does Mary carry in her womb? Jesus, right. So John, even in his mother's womb, is already doing his job. Somehow, John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, leaps around in there as soon as Mary enters with Jesus in hers. That's amazing. What we're going to see in this passage today is that every single person points to Jesus. The unborn six-month-old child in the womb points to Jesus. Elizabeth is going to point to Jesus. Mary is going to point to Jesus. Everyone in this passage is going to point to Jesus. He is the big picture. He is the main idea. Every line in this text shouts of his greatness and his lordship. So first, John the Baptist points to Jesus. Then Elizabeth blesses Mary, and in her blessing, she also points to how great the unborn baby Jesus is. Look at the rest of verse 41, and we're going to read all the way down to verse 45. It says, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So now Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit of God. And as a result of that, she's able to know, uh, to instantly know, not only is Mary pregnant, but she also knows something of the significance of that pregnancy. Remember, Mary's only a few days pregnant at this point. A few days there is no way Elizabeth can know what she knows, at least not naturally. I know some new mothers have that kind of new glow, they say, right, when they're first pregnant. But what Elizabeth says here goes beyond a woman's normal intuition. This is her speaking prophetically by the Holy Spirit. And what does she say? She starts by declaring that Mary is blessed and the fruit of her womb is also blessed. Not the fruit of the loom, right? Read that carefully. Fruit of the womb is blessed. Now, I've got to say, because our, our culture is so kind of inundated with bad theology about Mary, calling Mary blessed is not the same thing as saying that we should worship Mary. 
It's not the same thing as saying that we should pray to Mary. It's not the same thing as giving her some, some kind of quasi-divine status. I was, I was talking to somebody on Friday night who was like, you know, Pastor, you really threw a lot of shade at Mary uh, on, on your last Sunday, you know. And, and I said, well, yes, I did. And part of it was, again, to kind of push past that, some of that bad theology that's out there. Mary is a human person. She's not a perfect person. She has her flaws. And you know how I know that? Because last week in Luke chapter 1 that we saw several times, the angel said that Mary was chosen not because of her works, but because of God's grace upon her life. Grace is undeserved, unearned favor. That's what makes it grace. You know how else I know that Mary is not sinless? Because Mary herself is going to allude to that in the song that we read in a few minutes from now. But that doesn't mean that Mary is rotten. And I want to make sure I'm clear about this. I'm not trying to say that she's a terrible person. In fact, I'm going to argue that she is probably godlier than most of us, if not all of us. She immediately obeys the angel by hurrying down to Judah. Verse 45, it tells, her, tells us that she believed God's word to her. She's a, she's a godly woman for sure. But we don't worship her. We don't pray to her. She is not divine. Her blessedness is a consequence of Jesus' blessedness. The blessedness of Mary logically derives from the blessedness of Christ. It's like when your kid gets an award at school, maybe your friends hear about it and they say, you are just so blessed to have that kid. Well, you are, but it's because your kid has done some hard work and the accomplishments of your child that you are blessed. Now, that analogy does break down at some point because our children's accomplishments do kind of reflect ourselves, don't they? We've raised our kids right. Many times they turn out good. Not always, but many times. But with Mary, notice how Jesus is blessed before he's even born. He doesn't have degrees hanging up on his wall. He doesn't have certificates or sports awards or anything like that. He is intrinsically blessed because he is Lord. So all that to say, yes, Mary is blessed. But the focus even here is not on Mary. It's on Jesus. Verse 43 even confirms that. Elizabeth, I love these words. Listen carefully to how the text says it. She marvels that the mother of my Lord has visited me. Do you see that? The mother of my Lord. And she's talking about the mother of Jesus. She's referring to Jesus. Just a couple days old in the womb, she is referring to Jesus as her Lord. Again, the focus is not on Mary. It's not on Elizabeth. It's not on John the Baptist. The focus is on Christ, even from the womb. And this really amazed me as I thought about this this week. We think about it. Elizabeth is old and advanced in years, the text says. Chances are she will not live long enough to see Jesus grow up. She won't see his miracles. She won't see him go to the cross. She won't see him resurrect from the dead. And yet even here she recognizes Jesus is my Lord. This woman knew her place. And she recognized through the spirit of God the value of of Mary's child. She says in verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary believed the words of the angel. Mary believed that the one she carried in her womb was the son of God, the Messiah, the Lord of all creation. Just, just wrap your mind around that. What must that have been like to carry the Lord in the womb? 
Mary and Elizabeth both believe God was doing something incredible. And at this point, Mary herself begins to sing and begins to praise God, her Savior. Now, just like we saw when we looked at uh, Ezra's prayer in Ezra chapter 9, the prayers and the songs of righteous people can teach us many things. Teaches us how we should pray. Teaches us what we should be praising God for. Mary's prayer is informative in that way. But we're also going to pay attention to what Mary praises God for. Why is she exalting the Lord? That will help us know something of God's character. Why is he praiseworthy? And what we're going to see is that the first two verses of Mary's song, Mary gives praise to God. And then she's going to give four reasons. So two verses of here's, I'm I'm praising God. And then four reasons of here's why I'm praising God. So first the praise, verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. This song that Mary is about to sing is sometimes called the Magnificat. The Magnificat. We get that title from a, the Latin translation of the original Greek text in verse 46. And I'll actually put the Latin on the screen for you. Um, my Latin is a little shaky, so bear with me. Et et Maria Magnificat, animal meat domination. Something like that. <laughs> I, you know, whatever. But you notice the word Magnificat in there, right? That translates the English exalt or magnify. My soul, Mary says, magnifies the Lord. My soul makes great the Lord's name. Every part of Mary's being exists to increase the reputation of the Lord. To magnify his name, not her own. Her spirit rejoices not on her own self, not on her own situation, not on her own accomplishments. Her spirit exists to rejoice in God, her Savior. And I've got to ask us, can we say this about our own lives? Why are you here? What's your goal in life? What do you strive for each day, each month, each year? Do you exist to make a name for yourself in the corporate world? Do you exist to further your own reputation on social media? Do you exist to to raise really good and godly kids and show them off? Or is every fiber of your being here to magnify God's name and to increase his reputation among this world? Does your life bring attention to God or does it draw attention to yourself? These are convicting questions for all of us, myself included. But this is what Mary's prayer is getting at. Now, why is Jesus so great? Why is she magnifying him above herself? Why should we magnify his name over above ourselves? The rest of this poem gives us these four reasons why Mary rejoices in and magnifies God. Starting in verse 48. She says, For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And we're going to pause right there, halfway through that verse. The first reason that Mary blesses and praises the Lord is his personal blessing upon her. Mary praises God because God has blessed her individually, personally. He has done great things for Mary. She says of herself, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. And again, I am struck by Mary's humility here. 
She doesn't look at this marvelous blessing on her life, this pregnancy, this, this Messiah growing within her, and she doesn't say, God has blessed me because of my righteousness. In her humility, she says, God saw my humble estate and then blessed me. Think carefully of those words. God saw not my humility, but my humble estate. In other words, my social position in life, God saw, and yet decided to still bless me. That's a good translation, humble estate, or humble state. Mary didn't come from a high social class. She wasn't upper class. She was not white collar. We know that because when Jesus and Joseph, or Mary and Joseph have Jesus, they eventually bring him to the temple and they give an offering to the temple. And the text tells us in Luke chapter 2 that uh, they bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the temple to sacrifice. And according to the Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 12, that was the cheapest option for that kind of sacrifice. In other words, it was the option, the sacrifice of the poor. Mary says, Lord, you have recognized me in my poverty. I had no claim to this privilege, yet you blessed me with such a great responsibility. Mary's words are very similar to Hannah's words in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In fact, much of Mary's prayer reflects Hannah's song of gratefulness after God blessed Hannah with a child. Remember when we studied Ezra 9, we saw that a lot of uh, Ezra's prayer reflected scripture. Godly people pray scripture. Mary's a godly person. Her prayer, her whole song here is saturated with the words of God. It uses words and themes and phrases from 1 Samuel, from the Psalms, and from many other places, and she reflects back the promises of God to her. She says, Lord, as you have done in times of old, now you are doing to me. Now make no mistake, even though the focus of this text is on Jesus even though this text takes great pains to tell us that Mary didn't earn the right to carry the Lord, we can still see here that Mary is a humble, godly individual, and we can learn from her. Just like when Gabriel first announced it to her, Mary calls herself again a bond slave, a maid. I am, I am nothing more than a servant of God. Her song is filled with biblical thoughts and words. She is a godly woman. Now that godliness, I think, serves two functions, two roles in this song. First, Mary's humility heightens the focus on Jesus instead of turning the attention to herself. Again, she could have sung this great song about how humble she is. Wouldn't really have made her humble though, would it have? You don't sing songs about how humble you are. That means you're not humble. So instead, she focuses on how great God is. She's such a godly woman, and yet the focus is not on her own godliness. It's on God's greatness. So that should be a lesson for us all. But second, Mary's humility shows us how we ought to think of ourselves. If as godly a woman as Mary thinks of herself in such humble terms compared to her Savior, how much less should we think of ourselves in comparison to our Savior? Or rather, how much more should we humble ourselves before our Savior? To put it another way, I'm going to reason that most of us are probably not more godly and not more humble than Mary is. She was probably godlier than all of us. And if that's the case, in her godliness, if she humbles herself like this, how much more should we humble ourselves before our great God? 
So we can learn something from Mary's humility, can't we? Mary praises God for his blessing upon her life. And she rightly prophesies that every generation will recognize how blessed she is to have this great privilege of carrying the Savior. The second reason Mary praises God can be found at the end of verse 49 into verse 50. She says, And holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. The second reason Mary praises God is for God's holy and merciful character. God is holy, God is merciful, and therefore he is worthy of our praise. What does it mean that God is holy? Have you ever thought about that a little bit? The root idea of holiness is separation of some kind. Separation apart from something, separation unto something else. Like the Israelites, they were a holy nation. Well, what does that mean? That means that God set them apart from all the other nations. They, they were set apart by the way they dressed. They were set apart by what they ate. They were set apart by how they celebrated during the year, these different religious holidays, how they worshiped. Everything about them was set apart. It was holy. Well, God is the ultimate holy. I once heard author and theologian D.A. Carson uh, say that the word holy at its root in Scripture is almost an adjective for God. It's almost a way of referring to the godness of God himself because he is absolutely set apart from everything else. When you think about the attributes of God, he holds all of them in perfection. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly gracious. He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly all these things to their perfection. He defines the very qualities of goodness and grace and love. That's what makes him holy. None of us are perfectly any of those things. God is set apart in the perfection of his character. And Mary says, God, you are holy. She also says, God, you are merciful. God's mercy is that quality of his that tends to, to withhold from us punishment that we deserve. Grace is getting something from God that we have not earned. Mercy is a judgment of God that he has held back that we have earned. As a professor, I am merciful to my students when they fail to hand in the paper on time, but I don't mark them down for lateness. Even though it's spelled out in the syllabus and I go over it very clearly in the beginning of the semester, if I withhold that judgment upon them, that's me showing mercy to their poor souls. Mary, Mary says that God's mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. And you might have noticed when you're reading that verse in verse 50, if you're reading from the New American Standard, the verse is all capital letters. That's the New American Standard's way of saying this is quoting scripture. Mary is quoting from Psalm 103 verse 17. It's a beautiful psalm. It reflects on the good works that God has given his people. In fact, the psalm starts off with the words, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's a parallel to Mary's song. She is blessing God because he is holy, because he is merciful. And church, we ought to bless God and praise God for the same reasons. God is holy. He is set apart. And yet at the same time, he is merciful towards those who love him, towards his children. Praise God. Generations later, millennia after Mary, God is still God. He is still holy. 
He is still merciful. And for those reasons, we magnify his name. So Mary, she magnifies God based on her personal experience of his blessing upon her. She magnifies God based on his own character. The third reason she magnifies God is in verses 51 to 53. She says, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So the third reason that Mary praises God is for the way that he has worked in the past. Mary reflects on God's mighty deeds, like when he parted the Red Sea, led the Israelites out of Egypt. She thinks about how God has, has scattered the proud and brought down great, prideful, arrogant rulers, like, like when he humbled King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. She thinks about how God has exalted those who are humble. Maybe she's even thinking here of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, God gave the gift of a child to. Mary quotes scripture again, this time Psalm 107. She thinks about how God fills the hungry and humbles the rich. God reverses the fortune of the people and his enemies. Maybe Mary's thinking about how God fed the widows during the times of the prophets Elijah and Elijah. Mary reflects on the past. She sees God's faithful hand that acts for his people all throughout scripture and says, God, you're still doing this even now today. Have you ever done this, church? Have you ever looked back in your life and considered God's faithful providential hand at work? One of my spiritual disciplines I, is I keep a prayer journal. I write down my prayer requests. I, I date them. And then as the Lord answers them, I kind of jot down how he's answered and when he answered. And that way I can look back over the years and the decades of the time that I've been a believer and see God's faithful hand in my life. It's incredible to see God working in ways that maybe you didn't even recognize until much later. I sat down last night and I, I pulled out, this is my first prayer journal. I'm not sure why I went with the Native American cover, but um, this is the first one that I ever used. The first year I was a Christian, a freshman in high school, I started keeping track of what I was praying for. And I flipped through this and I was just amazed at God's faithfulness. First year I was a Christian, I was praying for my future wife. That year, I met her. I didn't know it was her. We didn't start dating until many years later, but that was the year that I met her. First year I was a Christian, I started praying for a guy named Mike. Ten years after that, Mike and I started serving in pastoral ministry together. My first year as a Christian, I started praying for my Uncle Eddie, who was in the mafia. <laughs> Twelve years later, on his deathbed, Uncle Eddie came to know Christ. I look back at those times, and I'm not saying like it's because I'm praying it. I'm saying it's because God is faithful. God is faithful. And what Mary's doing is she's reflecting backwards on these times past and saying, look at what God has done in his people. God has always been faithful. And because of God's faithfulness, we praise him. So first she thinks about her own life. God has blessed me. That's why I praise you. She magnifies God based on his own character. She magnifies God based on his past actions. Fourth and finally, verses 54 and 55. Here's why else she magnifies God. She says, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. The fourth reason Mary praises God is because of God's love for his people, Israel. 
Long ago, God made a promise to Abraham, the father of the nation Israel. God made a promise to Abraham and through his descendants, Isaac and Jacob and many others to come. God promised to bless them and God promised to bless the nations through that family. And now what has God done? God has provided his Messiah, Jesus, through whom all the other nations will be blessed. And God brought that child through Mary, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. Jesus fulfills all the covenant promises that God has made to his people, every one of them. Mary is saying that God keeps his promises to his people. God is faithful. And our text this morning ends on verse 56. It says, Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So Mary stays with Elizabeth, her cousin, for three months. Now, how many months pregnant was Elizabeth when Mary showed up? Six. Now, I'm no mathematician. But when you add six and three, what do you get? Nine. Mary left at the right time. <laughs> right. In fact, Next week, we're going to pick up on the text and see that Elizabeth gives birth right after Mary walks out. Mary leaves. The text says she returned to her home. Now, notice how it says her home, not Joseph's home, uh, which tells me Mary and Joseph probably were not officially married at this point in the text yet. But let's take a step back for a minute. What have we seen here in Mary's prayer? She sings this song of praise to God. She praises God for four things. God has blessed Mary personally. God is a holy and merciful God. God has done mighty works on behalf of his people. And God loves his people and keeps his covenant promises to them. What a marvelous song. Mary recognizes the greatness of God. So I ask you, have you taken time to recognize God's blessings and God's hand in your life? First, have you considered all the ways that God has blessed you personally? And he has, you know. God has blessed you personally. I know this time of year can be difficult for some people for many, many reasons. But God has blessed you, maybe not even despite your difficulties, but in them at times. I, many years ago, I led a mission trip to India with a group of teenagers, 20 teenagers I took to India. I was out of my mind. Um, <laughs> But we were going to support and partner with a missionary that we supported as a church. And, and when we got there, I mean, we saw destitution unlike anything I've ever seen before in my life. We saw true poverty. We saw children who sometimes had clothes on their back and that was it. And yet, we saw joy. We saw smiles. We saw excitement. And we saw people talking about how blessed they were in God. If they can consider how blessed they are in the Lord with nothing on their backs, how much more should we look at the blessings that God has given us and say, praise you, Lord. Right? You have given us the gift of Christ. That's all we need. And yet you've given us so much more. God has blessed you abundantly. Take time today to think about that and praise him for it. Second, have you reflected on the holy and merciful character of God? How wonderful and marvelous it is that such a holy and powerful God would die for our sins. What a wonder it is that the Lord of all creation would show up as a baby, grow up, live a perfect righteous life, and die for me and you, sinners. Have you thought about that lately? 
how much mercy God shows you, even in your stubbornness, even in your rebellion, even in your arrogance, God has shown you mercy. How wonderful a God we serve. Third, have you thought back on the way that God has worked in your past? I'd encourage you to maybe take a peek back through Facebook timeline or, or maybe consider looking through photo albums if you still keep those kinds of things. Read through a journal or a diary and think about how God's invisible hand of providence has worked in your life over the past decades. Thank him for bringing you to this place in your life at this time. God is at work. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we always see it or not, God is at work. And he loves you. And he is faithful to keep his promises to his people. The truth is, you are his people. God loves you. He blesses you. He fulfills his promises. He shows you mercy. That is Jesus. That is the God that we worship during this Christmas season. Though we reflect on his infancy during Christmas, like Elizabeth and like Mary and like John the Baptist even, we can recognize he is our Lord and how blessed we are to serve him as our Lord. What I'd like to do is end our service here by reading from the psalm that Mary quoted. The first five verses of Psalm 103. We're going to put it up on the screen. And Pastor Austin has a few words to uh, announce afterwards as well. So you can come on up, Pastor, as, as we're reading this together. But let's look at the screen. And I'd like us to read this out loud together as a church to close this sermon. Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. A psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. That is the God that we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful and thankful that you are our God, that you have shown us mercy, that you are holy, that you have blessed us personally, individually, that you have blessed us as a church. Lord, that you have acted faithfully in the past, and we know because of that that you will continue to act faithfully in the future. May you be magnified among our lives today, Lord. May you be glorified in all these things. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian.